Hey everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wild, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rookrout. And today we have a really fun episode planned for you. We are going to be celebrating the 28th anniversary of one of our favorite films, A League of Their Own. Cannot wait to talk about this with you. But before we get into A League of Their Own, Nick, why don't you cover some of the release date changes and a big Oscar change that we got this week? Well, we have our quintessential tenant being delayed another two weeks to August 12th. Always. (laughs) (laughs) I found a funny quote. It was from a Warner Brothers spokesperson, and they said they want to open tenant midweek to allow audiences to discover the film in their own time. And we plan to play longer over an extended play period far beyond the norm to develop a very different yet successful release strategy, which... I feel like they've had exceptional expectations from this release and audiences making this Nolan's number one by far. And the complications definitely haven't helped, but I feel like their strategy to keep it alive is really just hanging on by a thread. I mean, it's really getting just absurd. (laughs) Just how many changes we have and the type of press that's coming out around this movie. I will say it's making me want to see it even more because I am just so curious. But the way that everything is going with COVID, I can't foresee a way that I will see this in theaters before there's a vaccine. If it's at a drive-in, great. But Right. I mean, Broadway was just delayed until 2021. So sad. And even though those are live actors, it's still the same experience. You're in a theater. You're sitting by people you don't know. And if that's delayed until 2021, I can't imagine theaters are going to be opening in the very near future, like some are expecting. So probably another two weeks, we'll have another delay, but these should be larger jumps. Yeah, he's very into the two-week increment, which, again, we've said before, I don't know what he thinks is going to change in two more weeks, but alas. Right. So Mulan was moved to August 21st. First Cow is being re-released, thankfully, on VOD in two weeks. So July 10th, which is really exciting. We're getting our next A24. And then our last little update with the Academy, actually, is that this week they allowed talent agents to now be able to vote as members at large in the Academy, which is exciting. I think that's interesting. I guess I've never really thought about that before as them not being a part of the decision-making process, but in the end, it only comes down to 111 people now able to vote. So I'm not sure about it making a big change, seeing as there are about 9,500 members already. So do you have any thoughts about this? How do you feel? So my first reaction to it was that this couldn't be good. I don't really think of agents when I think of integrity, I suppose. So I see why people are apprehensive about this, just because they could theoretically just back studios they could vote in a block but it is a very small number they've been trying to get voting privileges for a while now and if it does only make up about one percent i don't think it's going to have a huge effect on anything so i think it's again kind of just whenever the academy comes out with anything the first thing people do is think okay why is this bad what is the ulterior motive here? And I think people were worried because we've had Parasite and Moonlight Best Picture wins recently from smaller studios like A24 and Neon and the threat of another potential voting body being added that might have ulterior motives could affect films like that in the future. And that is worrisome, but I don't know exactly how big that effect can be. So I think for now we just roll with it, but I will say... Since David Rubin has been president, there have been quite a few changes. All the changes Mm -hmm. that we've had this year, COVID aside, right, with best original score and the merging of the sound categories. And now this change, it's interesting. I'm excited to see how it goes and what prognosticators think of any potential shifts in the future and if this will be the reason why. Also, the Academy announced yesterday its new members for the 2020 class. There are 819 total people depending on if they actually join which I guess is a thing every year but if everybody joins the makeup of the class is 45% women 36% underrepresented ethnic and racial communities and 49% international members from 68 countries I think this is great I think that 
they're making strides here. Clearly, if we look at these numbers. So I thought the numbers sounded great too at first, but then I went back a few years and looked at the percentages and makeup of those classes. So over the last few years, they fluctuated in terms of total number of members and then going up and down in percentages of women and people of color and with countries represented. So in 2015, membership was about 25% female. And then in 2020, it reached 33. But each year, it only changes maybe 1%. Over these five years, people from underrepresented communities grew from 10 to 19%. So there is some grander change going over time, which is great. But year to year, we don't see a huge change. So I think with the Academy Aperture that they're trying to to do for 2025 will be accomplished, but we're not going to see that drastic change. I hope to see. Yeah, I agree. I think we're definitely getting incremental change, but when you think about those statistics and how it hasn't exactly changed that much, it's just a little bit. I think that maybe a solution here really is to incorporate term limits or membership time limits to being an academy member to having voting privileges because I think that because of the way that the membership worked in the past and the fact that for many years it was predominantly white men born in the United States who were chosen to be in the academy it's going to take a long time for that population to leave right and I think if you put a term limit on it say someone's been in the academy for years but hasn't worked on a film, should they really still get to vote? I totally agree. I think we need term limits. We need to continue this influx of Mm -hmm. diverse members. Definitely. But we did welcome some really exciting members. So on the count of three, we're going to say who we're most excited about to be in the academy. (laughs) Three, two, one. Parasite. Parasite. (laughs) (laughs) That was unhinged. (laughs) I was so excited to see all of them there. Some of the others I loved to see were Caitlin Dever and Beanie Feldstein from Booksmart. Mm -hmm. That was great. I was very excited to see both of them. I was also really excited to see Olivia Wilde, one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. She's listed in the actor's branch, which I thought was interesting. I guess she has been in more, even as she's transitioning to being more of a director She only has one feature, so I get why she's included there. But I thought that was interesting. And also Florence Pugh, one of my favorites. It's surprising that Olivia Wilde got in for Richard Jewell and not directing Booksmart. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) We will find a way to bring up Richard Richard Jewell in every episode. This is not a funny movie, but we are in stitches right now. (laughs) Is Uh, Paul Walter Hauser in the Academy? He probably will be. I was also really excited to see in the actor's branch, Ben Mendelsohn. I was surprised that he wasn't already in the Academy. Right. Same with um, Bobby Cannavale. I think a lot of these names surprised me because of that fact that they weren't in already. It's like, what do you have to do? Exactly. But then you see Tim McGraw. He was in The Blind Side, which we'd love to remove that stain from the Academy's past. From the director's branch, my favorite, Lulu Wong, was inducted. I am so happy for her. Uh, So excited about that. And then from the cinematographer's branch, we have Jaren Blaschke, who did The Lighthouse and the Witch, Mm -hmm. and then Chase Irvin, who did Black Klansman. So it's nice to see some recognition on their part. And in the director's branch, too, I was so excited to see Ari Aster, who only has two features, but they've both been very impactful, I think, on the film world. Of course, Hereditary and Midsummer, Mm -hmm. And they just announced that his director's cut is coming out with an intro by Martin Scorsese, which I'm very excited for. And Robert Eggers, too. So thinking of A24, we have Ari Aster, Robert Eggers, and Lulu Wong all in now. 
So I can't wait. Also, I think a big thing too is I trust these people for their taste. So I'm so curious what they're going to think of all of these new releases coming out and what they will want to vote for. Okay, so now on to our main attraction. Probably my favorite baseball movie of all time, and or sports for that matter, A League of Their Own. I love this movie so much. I think it is definitely my favorite baseball movie of all time. And probably favorite sports movie, too. I think we might be in agreement on that. There are a lot that come close, but this one really just has... I have a special relationship to it. So, A League of Their Own was released in 1992. It was directed by Penny Marshall, who also directed Big, Awakenings, which is her only Best Picture nomination, The Preacher's Wife, and Renaissance Man. This movie stars Tom Hanks, Gina Davis, Rosie O'Donnell, Madonna, Lori Petty, and John Lovitz. So before we get into details about A League of Their Own, what do you love about this movie and how did you discover it? I'm sure I watched it at home at some point. My parents love this movie. I don't know if I'd seen it all the way through, but I was very young. I love the cast. I love the emotion throughout. It's just an uplifting, heartwarming story. You have everything from drama to comedy. You feel everything through this movie and it makes sports fun which for me is not my thing (laughs) why is this special to you there are a lot of reasons I think the first thing to talk about is that it is a sports movie and I am a sucker for a good sports movie and I think you touched on the emotion that they tap into here but that is what makes a good sports movie great is tapping into that emotion that is connected with sports and aside from that growing up as a girl who played pretty much every sport, this movie was completely revelatory for me. I I think that it taught me about feminism. I saw it when I was nine or 10. And at that age, it was so crucial and important for me to see these women cry when they were sad and yell when they were angry and celebrate when they won and have this sisterly rivalry and I have a younger Mm -hmm. sister so I definitely relate to Dottie more we'll talk about that later but (laughs) (laughs) having all of those things come together and be celebrated was something that I'd never experienced before and it's the reason why I return to this movie as often as I do being able to see women like that at such a young age when I was so impressionable was so important to me and I'm so glad that I had that experience when I did and I'm so glad that this film has lived on and that we get to have that relationship with this movie so I I adore it and we haven't even mentioned yet that it's based on a true story we'll get into like some of the facts later on but I think this recent viewing showed me more of the historical reference with it in that the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League was created because men, even baseball players, were going to fight in World War II. It was created essentially to save baseball and to keep people entertained back home. And they didn't know if the men were going to come back. They kind of assumed they weren't, as you see in the movie with these women on the team. Very interesting. I love the framing of the story where it's Dottie grown up and she comes back and then it kind of fades into the older story. I do love the historical context there and how Marshall decides to set up, frame, and tell her story. So if you haven't seen it, you definitely need to watch it. But if you're tuning in and haven't seen it, you're still going to listen. So Nick touched on the significance historically of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League during World War II. But this film specifically follows this all-female baseball league that springs up in the Midwest that in this film it's funded by this kind of publicity hungry candy maker named Walter Harvey and it follows these two sisters Dottie Hinson and Kit Keller and they just have this sibling rivalry between them that is the focal point of the story. Dottie is the best baseball player in the league and Kit loves it more I would say but isn't as good as her sister so that's kind of that important point but it follows them as they try out for this team and they're both selected to be on the Rockford Peaches and it follows their teammates their coach who is played by Tom Hanks and his past as this washed up alcoholic former baseball player and the story that goes on throughout so that's just the baseline summary I would say of what story you're getting into here fun fact you mentioned Walter Harvey he was based on 
Wrigley, Mm -hmm. who owns the Cubs, and then Wrigley Field, which is where they filmed the tryout scene. And Wrigley, of course, famous for chewing gum, not for chocolate, but just a different kind of sweet of sorts there. (laughs) This movie had a $40 million budget, and it grossed $132.4 million, which is big, and with a league of their own and big. Penny Marshall became the first female director to have two films gross over $100 million. So she is an icon. Big, of course, also starring Tom Hanks. I prefer A League of Their Own, but Big is fun too. Critically, A League of Their Own was selected by the National Film Registry of the Library of Congress in 2012 for preservation. And this just means there are 25 films nominated every year since 1989 because of their historical significance. So since then, we have 775 total films and the 2020 nominations need to be submitted by this September. So we haven't seen those yet. And then the film itself was nominated for two Golden Globes, one for Best Actress in a Musical or Comedy for Gina Davis, and then the other for Best Original Song, which is the end credit sequence song. We've talked about this before. (laughs) This is my exception, though, to the rule, because I really like this one. (laughs) This is a good song. It's called This Used to Be My Playground by Madonna, who is in the film, and Shep Pennybone. I can't wait to talk about Madonna (laughs) in this movie. Oh, my God. (laughs) Iconic in so many ways. So what we're going to do next is we're going to go through a bunch of different segments And we're going to choose some of our favorite things from the film. And then we'll get into some fun little known trivia that when I was reading, I found so fascinating. There's so much trivia about A League of Their Own. So first up, we have best scene. The first scene that I put down is the montage of the Rockford Peaches showing the attendance boosting for the league. It's a really great montage. I think that any sports movie should have a good montage similar to the Oscars, but this one in particular, it just shows how at first the interest seemed low and the league might fail, but then how it grew and how people got really into it. And it just features some great sports moments too. And what's fun about this movie is that there's not one montage, but two montages, which both are amazing. The second montage is near the end before the World Series game, and it shows a ton of newspaper headlines showing how the series is going. And I think the score is really important here because, well, throughout the movie, but it just keeps the intensity high and makes these montages even more thrilling. So my favorite scene is when the girls sneak out of the house to go to this bar and dance. And in order to do so, they end up drugging their house mom slash chaperone, Miss Cuthbert. Really quick, funny story that I found when I was researching this movie. So Miss Cuthbert is played by Pauline Brailsford. Do you know what award she was nominated for, for this movie? Was it like a Razzie? Kind of close. But funnier even. So before the scene even takes place, they have this saga that goes on throughout the day. Tom Hanks in his, you know, drunken stupor wakes up from a nap and kisses Miss Cuthbert. So Pauline Brailsford and Tom Hanks both shared a 1993 MTV Movie Award nomination for Best Kiss. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Which is so, so wild. I mean, that's the whole sequence is out-of-control comedy, but I thought that was hilarious. So once the girls get to the bar, they end up dancing a lot, and the scene really focuses on Madonna, and it's just mesmerizing to watch her dance between all these guys. And then this is also when Marla meets her future husband, Nelson, which is cute. But it's a fun interlude, which the film has a ton of, but I enjoyed this one. I love this one, too. I think it it showcases Madonna as both her character, May, and as Madonna, right? We get to see her as Madonna dancing in this bar, and we get to see all of the teammates having fun and letting loose for a little bit, and it shows their friendship. But I think that, you know, seeing Madonna like that is just really fun. And again, Marla singing on stage to Nelson. Anytime I hear It Had to Be You... I think of her. I think of that scene because it's so funny. And she meets her husband. So the next one that we have down is the tryout sequence. So Kit and Dottie take the train to get to Chicago to try out for a number of these teams. They 
go all the way from Oregon to Chicago. And when they arrive there, they meet Doris, who's played by Rosie O'Donnell, and May, played by Madonna. And I just love seeing all these women there, getting ready to try out. But most importantly, I think that this really showcases... Doris and Rosie O'Donnell her comedic ability she has so many great one-liners in this and Madonna and Rosie O'Donnell play so well off of each other and seeing their relationship just right off the bat and how they interact with the other women is just it's really cool I think and also it shows that Dottie who we've seen at the beginning when the film starts is really as good as everyone thinks she is. So there's a scene where Rosie O'Donnell kind of surprises them and throws a ball like right at Kit and Marla and Dottie. And Dottie just reaches her hand up and catches the ball barehanded. And Rosie O'Donnell's like, how'd you do that? <laughs> She's maybe my favorite part of this movie. It's just the comedy from Rosie. And I feel like she's been like denigrated so much over media and just, I think, as a human being, mm-hmm. which is rough because she does such a good job in this movie. And it's fun. A little fun fact here is that Rosie was actually nervous about meeting Madonna, but you see their chemistry in the film. They hit it off and they're actually still good friends today. One, I think that really shows in the movie. And I think how strong their connection is in the movie. I mean, this kind of goes for the whole team but it just makes the movie that much stronger. You really feel for these women playing. Yeah, I think that anytime as a director, you're lucky enough, and really as a viewer, to get a real relationship that you can sense from your characters. It's like a goal, hitting a gold mine. And I think that Rosie O'Donnell and Madonna really embody that. Madonna and Rosie are playing with different types of comedy here. What I always find Rosie O'Donnell's skill to be in this movie is that she can deliver the most basic line in the funniest possible way. Some things that I shouldn't have even laughed at, I was cracking up anytime she was talking. I love how, so Rosie O'Donnell actually wanted to play Marla. That's who she was going to read for, but they'd already found Megan Cavanaugh for the part of Marla and Doris and May, they're supposed to be very similar. But then when Rosie O'Donnell wanted to be in the movie, they rewrote Doris for her so that she and Madonna could play off of each other together. So another of my favorite scenes is really, I talked about earlier, the framing. It's towards the end, which again, isn't a spoiler, but it's back to present day when the players are old and they're reconnecting. Yeah, they're in Cooperstown, so it's where the Baseball Hall of Fame is. Dottie comes in, she's watching the game, and then some of the girls recognize Mm -hmm. her and bring her over. And this was so emotional. (laughs) But it was them all meeting each other, figuring out, you know, either who of them had passed away or their husbands. And even the older characters had this easy relationship. And they still showed, like, they had these connections, even though they hadn't seen each other in forever. And they were different actresses. But it was also so cool how one Gina Davis's older counterpart really did look like her and I feel like Madonna's really looked like her too yes (laughs) (laughs) great casting there so they're inducted in the Baseball Hall of Fame and it's just this nostalgia and then we see Kit and Dottie reunite and like the waterworks just let loose (laughs) This scene really gets me. I think what I love about it and why it works so well is because we get to see their relationships on and off the field. We get to see the highs and the lows. And these characters are really well developed. And we get to see these relationships bloom throughout just a short period of time throughout one season. And when you spend that much time with these characters who you come to love and understand, and then you see them old, there is this overwhelming sense of nostalgia and this idea that even if they haven't seen each other for years or if they've kept in touch that relationship is one where they can just jump right back in and they have all these shared memories and they're just these little old ladies and you think about all the power that they had and how cool that is and it's just I'm getting emotional thinking about it I think during the credits they end up playing a game which is cool to watch too and they still have it And then the last scene here is game seven. So we're going to talk about the ending in depth. So I'm just going to say for now, game seven, that last game, the whole scene of the last game of the World Series has to be in the conversation for best scene. One of the best board scenes. Yeah. It makes me feel everything. You feel this rapturous 
joy you feel nervous you're upset and it's all wrapped up in there and that's how you feel watching sports ideally so they really captured that well here but we'll save that to talk a little bit more about the ending so if you had to choose a best scene or one that they should have shown if this movie was nominated for best picture what would you pick it's hard because there aren't a ton of scenes where they're all interacting and speaking. They're either all playing baseball, which isn't really like a an Oscars scene per se, but it's still exciting. I would either do a scene where they're singing their anthem or one of the bus scenes, like when they're teaching the one player how to read. What about you? Which would you pick? It's hard because I think to understand the movie, it should be a baseball scene. It should be something with them playing, whether it's a segment of the montage of Dottie doing the splits catch for Life magazine, something like that. Or it should be one that I'm realizing I didn't put in this category, but I think is a good showcase of it. And that would be when Dottie's husband, Bob, comes back from the war and she decides she's going to give up baseball and she has this in-depth conversation with Jimmy with Tom Hanks's character and they're talking about what it means to love something and like something and to leave something behind and I think it's really powerful and always makes me kind of grip my teeth a little bit because then I get angry about all of the societal rules for women back then but that aside it shows Gina Davis and Tom Hanks's power as actors and also shows aside from the sibling rivalry another I think key relationship of the movie. Okay, and that's a good transition into our next little segment of sorts, just going over some best quotes from the movie and from this scene in particular, which Jimmy ends up calling Dottie a quitter, saying it's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. The hard is what makes it great. And it really gets to her and she's conflicted and ends up coming back probably because of the speech. But Jimmy has finally come into the team and he's pretty much one of their own. And he's really fighting for Dottie to stay because she's not only great, but she's a part of the team. And it's hard to watch somebody leave just because their husband came back from the war and they want to start a family when these women have talent too and this was their life for a short time but shouldn't have been just used as like a little interlude during the war i love this quote because this captures why people love sports so much this talent and dedication doesn't come easily to athletes and Dottie has this inherent athletic ability and she's a smart player she's a great player she's the best player in the league she has that there's something about it that is hard and that is what Jimmy understands as someone with a difficult past that he's trying he's trying to grapple with it I think and he's coming to terms with despite Tom Hanks's comedy Tom Hanks has a really good emotional performance of someone who is grappling with the decisions that they've made and putting himself back into that world and I think that his this quote comes with a lot of wisdom and it's something that hits you hard as a viewer and I really like that too I don't know if this was the like an actual case but I know that Tom Hanks gained a lot of weight he gained 30 pounds in preparation for the role and Penny Marshall was all for it she encouraged him to keep eating and that definitely plays into his like alcoholic character kind of this deadbeat ex-baseball player and I felt like his face looked a lot skinnier in this scene and maybe that was intentional maybe it wasn't maybe it was just me but kind of showing his transition to having a newfound motivation for pursuing baseball now as a coach and as a leader and you talk about his past and he says that he essentially wasted five years of his life with alcoholism and this is just another emotional storyline where it's like you're rooting for the underdog you're rooting for all of them Tom Hanks loved his Dairy Queen, apparently, during the filming of this. He attributes Dairy Queen to his weight gain, which, who among us? <laughs> but what I love, too, about... Jimmy is that at the end of the movie when they're at the Hall of Fame we see that he lived to be in his 80s like he had a good long life so maybe this was we can assume that this was a big turnaround moment for him and I think Tom Hanks captures that so perfectly as he does with every role but I think this one in particular is just really good. Speaking of Tom Hanks I think the most iconic quote that we have from the film is there's no crying in baseball which (laughs) Jimmy says to Evelyn and his delivery of this is just so perfect 
perfect. And that's all we can say about that one. <laughs> There's a really funny one when everybody's getting on the bus and these two little boys come by in their tricycles and they're like, go up to Jimmy and they're like, sign my baseball. And so he takes it. He's like, sure. And you're like, uh-oh. And he signs it and the boy reads it. says, avoid the clap, Jimmy Dugan. <laughs> <laughs> the delivery is just so good. Wow. Avoid the clap, Jimmy Dugan. (laughs) (laughs) These kids obviously have no idea, but... No idea. So good. Another one that I love is... So John Lovitz in this movie has such great comedy. He has so Mm -hmm. many lines. I just cackle at every time. He plays Ernie Cappadino, who is the scout, getting these women to come try out. And my favorite one that he says is, the train moves, not the station. (laughs) Oh, my God. All of his jokes here remind me of Rat Race, which is one of my all-time favorite comedies. It's oh my god, so really? Silly. <laughs> I did it's not so know silly. That. But John Lovitz in that too is just so slapstick. I mean, even when he kind of shrieks when he sees Marla's face. Oh, I know. And the that whole turned Marla into a thing. thing. Is sad. Yeah. Hey, cowgirl, see the grass? Don't eat it. That one's good too. <laughs> He loves making fun of them for being farm girls and not Mm -hmm. wanting to leave the cows behind, which is just, I mean, he just, he delivers constantly. It's a delivery. Mm -hmm. And the most emotional one, of course, is in the beginning, the sisters say it to each other. And then at the end, once they're boarding the buses after the World Series game. So Dottie goes, lay off the high ones. And Kit says, I like the high ones. Mule. Nag. And it's just this really cute sisterly thing they do. And at the very end, it just, it hits you. It comes back around. All right. So let's talk about the ending. At this point, we're going to spoil the ending. There's just no other way to talk about this movie without (laughs) spoiling it. (laughs) So what ends up happening? Game seven of the World Series. It is the Racine Bells who Kit got traded to from the Rockford Peaches against the Rockford Peaches. Game seven, final game. Dottie has been gone actually with her husband for the first six games. Comes back for game seven, which is odd, but that aside, we're in game seven. Kit is up at bat. She can be out here or she can potentially win it all. Mm -hmm. She's up. Dottie has a conversation with the pitcher, tells her to give her some high ones. As we know, we just discussed Kit likes the high ones and she gives her a high one. And on what could have been the third strike, Kit hits a long one to the outfield and she gets to third. She rounds third. She could have stayed there, but she decides to book it home and she crashes into Dottie and Dottie drops the ball. And the racing bells win the world series kit is the hero of the game that's the end how do you feel about it it's the most intense ending that they could have thought up which was great Mm -hmm. not historically accurate at all but i think it's fun (laughs) it makes you think did she drop the ball on purpose part Mm -hmm. of me does because Dottie's this incredible baseball player she would have kept the ball in her glove she wouldn't Mm -hmm. have had it in her bare hand but I think I believe her when she tells Kit that she really did drop the ball and she didn't do it on purpose I think this redeems Kit for a lot of the things she's been upset about the whole movie about you know being in Dottie's shadow I mean either way it's it's the perfect ending what do you think I find it hard to watch but I think that it is the ending that the film needs it's a great one I think what I find challenging is that I'm so irritated with Kit the entire movie that it's hard to root for her and that could partially be because I am an older sibling but I think it's also just her character is tough to root for she picks fights throughout the entire movie and it's really unnecessary I think she's very immature. I know she's like the younger sister and always kind of gets the short end of the stick. But in the locker room where she starts crying and, you know, yells at Dottie, why did you take me out of the game? It's like you weren't doing well. You had been up there too long. It was a smart decision. Mm -hmm. We won the game. Like that was that. I mean, I understand her frustration, but also she can't see the other side to it. She's so immature 
and emotional that I think she lets the sibling rivalry cloud her confidence and her ability to play. So I do like at the end that she's able to have that moment that Dottie always has these moments and Kit was due for one, but it's just hard. I think that too, this sibling rivalry is really well written. We've seen so many great sibling rivalries throughout film and TV. I think that this sibling rivalry, do you watch Top Chef? <laughs> no, I actually don't. And a lot of people tell oh me my to God, watch you need it. To. I know. On season six of Top Chef in Las Vegas, there are these two brothers, Brian and Michael Voltaggio. Brian is the older one, and he is more serious by the book, the rule follower, and he's very talented all season long wins challenges but there's always kind of this rivalry going between him and his younger brother Michael Voltaggio who's I would say a little bit more hot-headed a little bit more immature but a great chef far more creative I would say and inventive but they have this really kind of interesting relationship back and forth what ends up happening at the end is that even though Brian had been the front runner all season long Michael ends up winning Top Chef they're the final two it's this huge deal and When I was watching this movie again, all I could think of was this iconic sibling rivalry from Top Chef, not the sibling rivalry in The Lion King or Little Women or all of these, you know, that sibling trope that we have. But so it exists in real life, too. So I think that's what's so great about the way that these characters are written. Going to what you said about whether or not Dottie dropped the ball on purpose, I think that she did. And there are a couple of reasons why I think she did. The first is because it's historically proven in the movie that she can hold on to the ball when she's run into by a runner. Like we see that happen to her. She holds onto the ball. She shows the umpire. She's good. I also think that she sets her up perfectly for her big moment. She knows that Kit doesn't like the high ones, but she knows that she knows her sister and that Kit will be prepared for another one coming her way and she can finally get that big hit that she wants. And I also think that part of the reason why she's so hesitant in the future to go back to the Hall of Fame isn't because she leaves after one season. It's because she feels guilty about throwing game seven. I really think that that's the guilt that she's kind of ridden with is because she let her sister have that big moment and she knows that it's important to Kit and that she feels bad about her getting screwed over in this trade that she wanted to be traded even though she should have known that she was the best player in the league they're never going to trade her but I think she felt guilty about all of these things and I think that she gave Kit her moment in the end. Well, we wouldn't even have this scene if Doris just would have thrown the ball and not taken forever to throw it home. <laughs> I <laughs> It's just bad editing, but it's like a delayed throw where in reality, there would have just been no way that Kit would have been safe. No, that's really funny. Who do you think is the most detrimental person to the Rockford Peaches? Who do you think is the reason why they lose? I feel like Evelyn is really bad. And I feel like we don't talk about that enough. (laughs) Well, she does get yelled at for not throwing to the cutoff (laughs) she struggles a lot i think she's their weakest link athletically and her son has to be an intense stressor on these women (laughs) and jimmy as we know yeah and i know they can deal with it but having a kid around oh my gosh yeah he's just making noise the whole time i would feel the same way i would want him out of there so if you could only draft one rockford peach say you were jimmy dugan who would you pick I think that Dottie's the obvious answer because she's the best player in the league. I mean, she literally bats a thousand. (laughs) And Jimmy can count on her for more than just athletic ability, right? She basically works as Mm -hmm. coach number two. But if I'm me drafting, I think I would actually take May because I think that she's a great hitter. She's an outfielder, which good outfielders are hard to come by I think she offers a lot of positivity and spunk and spirit to a team and that I think is someone that you want she also teaches Shirley Baker to read which I love despite what the reading material might be so I think I would pick May actually who would you pick that was gonna be mine too actually she just is quick to roughen herself up where she goes for those Mm -hmm. really long fly balls and catches them and bangs into the back wall so I think it's that's an important quality in a player is they're willing to go for it. They're willing to slide. But I think Doris would be my other one because she's strong and tough too. I don't know how much we actually see of her playing. So the trick when Doris throws the two balls 
at once. That was real. That was actually Rosie, which I think is really cool. So I think she actually could play and we saw some. Madonna, on the other hand, could not play. (laughs) May was supposed to be third base, but Madonna couldn't field ground balls. So they moved her to the outfield. (laughs) (laughs) Just so many great Madonna facts and more to come. Do we want to get into our casting breakdown? Yeah, let's do it. We mentioned earlier how good of a casting job they did with the older counterparts to the younger players. So Dottie and Kit in present day are played by Lynn Cartwright and Kathleen Butler, but their voices are actually dubbed by their younger counterparts, Gina Davis and Lori Petty. So this is why it's a little perplexing at first because she really does look like Gina. And part of me was like trying to find the makeup and the prosthetics to like find Gina underneath, but it wasn't, it was someone different and their voices do match up really well. So they did a good job with this. I mean, this is like better than the Irishman, the aging and (laughs) de-aging. They look so much like them. And then with the voice dubbing, it really does throw you. It's so convincing that these are actually these real women that played them. So our next fact we have is that Gina Davis actually joined the production as a late replacement for Deborah Winger. Deborah Winger dropped out actually because Madonna was in the film and Davis actually joined a few days before filming was due to start. And as we know, we've talked about her character is supposed to be one of the greatest Hmm. women baseball players in America. And the cast had been doing baseball training for months and within weeks, Gina Davis had mastered the game and was regularly beating all of her co-stars. I'm thankful for Madonna for a lot of reasons in my life, but I'm really thankful that Madonna joined and that Deborah Winger quit because Deborah Winger's five foot four and Gina Davis is six feet tall. And to have Dottie be this towering athletic presence, this leader of her team, it works better, I think, if you are a taller actress. And Gina Davis is statuesque. Like she seems that she would be able to be a natural leader and carry that team. I feel like Deborah Winger being on the shorter side next to Lori Petty the rivalry wouldn't work as well and you it wouldn't be that believable I think for Deborah Winger to be that much better athletically compared to Lori Petty whereas Gina Davis I think it's it's obvious that she seems more athletic I think the stature is important but I also just can't not see Gina Davis playing Dottie (laughs) and Gina Davis is Dottie when I see Gina Davis in any other role the first one I think of is Dottie not Stuart Little's mom (laughs) no And not in Beetlejuice. (laughs) I'm glad that Deborah Winger was too proud to work with Madonna because we got Gina Davis. Exactly. And then also Demi Moore couldn't because she was pregnant. And Marshall actually said that Bruce literally screwed her out of getting the part, (laughs) which is too funny. That's too good. Demi Moore, I don't know how it would work either. Bottom line is we can't see anyone other than Gina Davis in this role. So Tracy Reiner, a.k.a. Betty Spaghetti, so one of the characters who she finds out that her husband died, that character, is actually Marshall's daughter. And Gary Marshall, who plays Walter Harvey, is her brother. So it's this whole family affair. And Gary Marshall actually got the part because Christopher Walken was too expensive. They had to swap at the last minute. Farrah Fawcett also wanted to be in the movie, but she was slightly too old. I can kind of see that. I think if this was in the 70s or maybe even early 80s, Farrah would actually be a perfect fit, maybe even for the Madonna part. But yeah, she would have been like 44 maybe when they filmed this, which is is a little old, I guess. I think it's clear that the women in the movie are supposed to be while some of them look a little bit older, they're supposed to be in their early 20s, you know, wanting to start a family or getting married then. I think back then most of them were around that age. So my favorite casting fact actually is that Marissa Tomei filmed an audition tape of her playing baseball, being coached by none other than Joe Pesci on the set of My Cousin Vinny. But according to Marshall, she just wasn't a ball player. I, I need to see that audition tape. I need to find it. That is too funny. It would have been fun to see her in this movie. I always love when she shows up and Moira Kelly also originally signed on to play Kit but hurt her ankle during the filming of The Cutting Edge I think she could have been good in that part but I do think that the dynamic between Gina Davis and Lori Petty is just too good and I can't imagine anyone else in those parts 
So moving on to some fun trivia. So one fact is that all of the injuries and bruises that were shown in the movie were actual injuries from the actresses during filming and practice, which is insane. And I read that part of the issue is that they trained with modern protection in pads. And when they had to switch to the old uniforms with the skirts and there being no leg covering at all. And then also So one of the actresses caught a fly ball with an old mitt and the webbing actually broke and the ball went through the glove and broke her nose. And she said like her nose hasn't been the same since. Oh my God. Which is horrifying. Another one is that Renee Coleman, who they show at one point with this giant bruise on her thigh, was real. You know the one. It's It is actually watermelon sized. And it took a year to go away. That is crazy. What's funny is that every time I saw her character, I just had a double take because I kept thinking it was Greta Gerwig. She does look like Greta Gerwig. Oh my god. <laughs> the bangs, the right. short hair, right? I was totally I was trying to place who she reminded me of the entire time and it's mm-hmm. definitely Greta Gerwig. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Greta Gerwig's going to try to remake a league of their own about like some other sport. I would love that. I <laughs> Me too. I'm all here for it. <laughs> so Another fact that we have is that Madonna was notoriously hard to work with on set. We can't be surprised by this really at all. But she wrote this letter to the photographer Stephen Mizell during filming and... It's pretty short, but I'm going to read it because it is just, I think it's its hilarious. Are you ready? Dear Stephen, for some reason I thought you were angry with me because I finked out as a judge at the love ball, because I'm still nice to her Brits, because my hair is the wrong color. I hope you will forgive me for all of the above because I cannot suffer any more than I have in the past month learning how to play baseball with a bunch of girls. Yuck. In Chicago. Double yuck. I have a tan, I'm dirty all day, and I hardly ever wear makeup. Penny Marshall is Laverne, Gina Davis is a Barbie doll, and when God decided where the beautiful men were going to live in the world, he did not choose Chicago. (laughs) I have made a few friends, but they're athletes, not actresses. I hate actresses. They have nothing on the house of extravaganza. I wish I could come to New York and visit. Are you having a good summer? Saw the piece in the New York Times Magazine. Great. I would love to do this book thing with you soon. So let's talk. Thanks a lot, Stephen. Love, Dita. The book, of course, being Madonna's sex book (laughs) that comes out right after this. Oh, my God. Wow. Right? (laughs) Isn't that That a letter? That totally changes things. (laughs) That's frustrating that she was such a problematic actress. Yeah. It's tough. It makes you think, okay, Deborah Winger made a good choice maybe to step out, but... Mm-hmm. At the same time, the line about the men in Chicago is just too good. That's You can't make that up. So another fact is that Tom Hanks and Gina Davis were actually supposed to share a kiss in the movie. But then it was probably a mix. But Penny Marshall decided she didn't want a love story to distract audiences. And some players were shown a rough edit of the film. And they were really upset that one of their players, especially Dottie, who was married, would kiss another man while he was away fighting. So the filmmakers decided to cut it. And I'm really happy this didn't happen. It would have totally distracted, been some like horrible plot line we really didn't need. And I'm glad they focused on the baseball, kept it to what it is. I'm so glad too. I think that Tom Hanks and Gina Davis have excellent chemistry. I would have believed it, but it doesn't work. It's not what this film is about. And I think that this, again, is why it's important to have women behind the camera. Because I think that if a man were directing this, it might have stayed in, despite the audience reaction. So I love that Penny Marshall said no, and we don't have that relationship between them. I agree. I think it would have thrown everything off. And I think the most intimate, per se, they get is when they're on the bus and instead of handing him his flask, Dottie hands him a Coke. Mm -hmm. And while it may have been an advertisement choice, it still is just more mature choice to have on how these two have formed a real relationship as friends. And that's that. Yeah. They have a good relationship. I think that they learn to respect each other and 
he really relies on her a lot and I like their relationship better as a friendship. I think it works really well. So our next one that we have is, so the infamous scene where we meet Jimmy Dugan, AKA Tom Hanks, he is peeing forever. And I think it ends up lasting 57 seconds. And Penny Marshall actually created this sound with a hose in a bucket. And not even Tom Hanks knew how long his character would be peeing. He just kind of had to go with it until it was over. And she decided when. And that ended up being almost a minute. So some other fun facts we have. During filming, Lori Petty threw more pitches than Major League Baseball players do in entire seasons. So she really had to train and was very athletic. I read also that Gina Davis is supposed to be faster than Lori Petty, so Dottie's supposed to be faster than Kit, but in real life, Lori Petty was actually faster than Gina Davis, so she would have to kind of slow down when she was running. (laughs) And also, so the extras that we see in the Hall of Fame sequence at the end, those were real players in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, and Spielberg actually asked Penny Marshall if he could borrow this idea for Schindler's List using real Holocaust survivors in the film. And she let him do it. Well, so on to our final question now. If you had to nominate this movie for one Oscar, what would it be? I Can I have two? Is that cheating? Can I do two? Yeah, do two. I, I'll mention a few as like kind of backups pretty much. Okay. So my first one is Gina Davis for Best Actress. I think that she really makes this movie and has an iconic lead actress performance that has a lot of depth to it. It's very complex. And I would also nominate Tom Hanks for Best Supporting Actor. I think that this is what we want out of a Best Supporting Actor film. He is clearly supporting. And it's interesting whenever you see a Tom Hanks film to try to separate Tom Hanks the movie star from the character that he's playing and in this I think that only benefits him because we're able to warm up to this brash Jimmy Dugan character not just because he's Tom Hanks but because of the way that he plays him all the emotions he puts in I think his comedic timing is really good in it too. So I think I would pick those two. Who would you pick? Or what would you pick? It's kind of interesting. You lean towards the actor categories and I go more technical. So honestly, I I think if this were 2020 with all of the political and inclusive things that are happening, I think this could really get pushed for picture mm-hmm. as like one of the 10. It's a little stretch, but I think feminism wise... And just overall appeal and emotion, I think that's important for a movie. And there's a lot of discussion to be had. I love that. I I agree. Especially because in... So this was the 1993 Oscars. Best Picture category, Unforgiven One by Clint Eastwood. The Crying Game, A Few Good Men, Howard's End, and Scent of a Woman. Oh my god. And it's like all of these, except for The Crying Game, like old white men movies. Yeah. That's not a great year. Mm -mm. So I think it definitely could have fit in there. Yeah. And we didn't talk about this scene earlier, but I think too, when you talked about, you mentioned the political and just feminism. I love the scene when, when they're warming up and we see Dottie get ready to catch the ball from um, the black woman that is standing with her family and she throws it over Dottie actually all the way back in and they just kind of have this touching moment where she just gives her a nod and this movie is very white with the times but we see this quick little moment of okay women of color struggling especially black women here even more so than these white women with the war and everything that's going on in society. And I love that little touch that she threw in. Right. There's this solidarity that Gina feels. And actually in the girls league, black women weren't allowed. And you had these strong black players. And actually that woman who they show was based off of Mammy Johnson, who was one of the only pitchers to play in the Negro leagues. So I really like this too, where they nod to the problems of the times and where things were. So my other category probably would have been screenplay. I think the one-liners we've all mentioned, everybody just has great lines and they play well off each other. And I think that's the sign of a good script as well. I like both of those picks too. So together we would nominate it for at least four Oscars. (laughs) (laughs) And my exception to the song at the end credits rule. 
I think that Madonna got kind of screwed out of an Oscar nomination here because that year we had two songs from Aladdin that got nominated and two songs from The Bodyguard that got nominated. So we had music heavy films there. And this, I think if it were around today, is just a shoe in. You have a big star doing a song in a crowd pleasing movie that did really well at the box office. And I think that she would have gotten nominated if it were today. Yeah, that's annoying. All right. So I think that's all we have for a league of their own. I love talking about this movie with you. That was really fun. It's a great one. Yeah, it'll always be one of my favorites. So moving on, we were also talking about some other baseball movies in addition to A League of Their Own. So we're going to be doing Rapid Fire again, just like we did last episode with Nam or Bomb going through baseball movies, Rapid Fire. Are you ready? I'm ready. The first one that we have is The Sandlot. I'm giving this a Nam for sure. This is kind of embarrassing, but I'm not sure I've seen the whole thing. Oh, you need to watch it. Last year at work, I had many a children turn this on. So I've seen the beginning 20 <laughs> minutes, probably seven or so times. <laughs> but I would give this a nom. So I know we have we have a list here of films. And it's really embarrassing how many of these I haven't seen. I'll definitely rate the ones that I have. I'll let you do the ones that I haven't. But So I've seen parts of Major League. I know it's about the Cleveland Indians, which is just fun to have a film be about your hometown. Very funny. But I haven't seen The Natural. I haven't seen Field of Dreams. Oh, my God. <laughs> I probably saw Benchwarmers, but don't really remember it. I haven't seen the original Bad News Bears. Have you? Or are you talking about the remake? I'm talking about the original. With Billy Bob. So since you haven't seen these, I'll run through them really quick. Major League, Definite Nom. This is a quintessential 80s sports movie. It's funny. It has fun performances by Charlie Sheen, Rene Russo, Wesley Snipes. It's great. I think it's, again, also about the Cleveland Indians, Nom. The Natural... Very long. I think that you'd be bored to tears by The Natural, I just have to say. (laughs) But Robert Redford is beautiful in it, and it is a classic nom for me as well. Field of Dreams is second to A League of Their Own, my favorite baseball movie. Wow. This is my go-to cry movie. The ending of this makes me weep. (laughs) Full-on sob. Face turns red. Amazing Kevin Costner performance. It is very cheesy. Very cheesy. Definite nom. I think it's, if you had to pick one from this list to watch, Field of Dreams is the one to watch. Benchwarmers is terrible. It has John Heater, Rob Schneider. It's it's tough. Definite bomb. I watched it when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. It's it's not great. Bad News Bears, original nom, remake, bomb. So if you're going to watch one, watch the original. So now let's hear some that you have seen because I it's very clear I just I've watched too many baseball movies and I think baseball movies in general are my favorite kind of subcategory of sports movies. I think maybe I'd agree. It's even from our list here, they definitely become the most exciting, which is interesting because to me baseball is one of the most boring sports to go and actually sit through. I guess even watching on TV like three and a half hours of sometimes no points <laughs> you are disgusted by my comment <laughs> a little bit it's okay it's more fun to go to a baseball game than to watch one on tv going to a baseball game is so much fun not that we can do any of that now i understand that it is slow i get that <laughs> i'd rather watch a baseball movie than go to a baseball game still well this doesn't really help with the next choice the rookie i saw this once when it came out absolutely loathed <laughs> This movie. I hated it. Terrible. Maybe worst Dennis Quaid movie ever. Have you seen The Intruder? That is the worst Dennis Quaid movie ever. No. Oh, Nick. Just give it a little Google. It's, I think it's the worst movie I saw of 2019. That was, wow. Okay. I'll look it up. But yeah, look it up. So you're giving The Rookie a bomb. Total bomb. Yeah. I view it nostalgically and I love Dennis Quaid, but I will also give it a bomb. Okay. It was, this was like over the top Disney romanticized everything. I did not enjoy this. Okay. Next up, we have Moneyball. You've seen Moneyball. (laughs) 
what would you give that? I have seen Moneyball. I did want to watch it again, but haven't gotten to it. Still a nom for me. We love Sorkin. And Brad. Brad proves that he can still look good in a visor. But I love Moneyball. I've said on this podcast before that I think it's the best sports movie of the 21st century so far. Best one we've got. Definite nom for me. All right. Do you want to talk about Bull Durham? Bull Durham was wild. Susan Sarandon was revolutionary in her performance. And it's kind of funny. We see Kevin Costner again. I don't know how this compares to Field of Dreams, but this is a nom for me. So when we're thinking about Field of Dreams, Field of Dreams taps into the emotion of sports movies, into the nostalgia, into family. Definitely a family-friendly movie. Bull Durham is not that. Bull Durham is... Like you said, wild. I think it's really interesting. The performances, especially like Tim Robbins is in it with Susan Sarandon. They, of course, had a very long relationship in real life, which is interesting to see them together in the movie. Kevin Costner in this. This is the best he's ever looked. Hands down. He's so good in this movie, too. Peak Kevin Costner. And it's on Prime for free. So I'll give it a nom and I suggest checking it out. I think it is a classic if we're thinking of baseball movies, too. Another one that I loved as a kid was Hardball. So this is a nom for me. I haven't seen it in a while. So I don't know how it holds up. But what do you think? I've actually never seen it. (gasps) Wow. Yeah, you got me. This is one I haven't seen, but I'll watch it. So I watched Everybody Wants Some today and people love this movie, but I have to give it a bomb simply because it's not a baseball movie. Like they're not, they talk about baseball, but they don't play baseball until an hour and a half in. And that's not what I want from a baseball movie. So for the purposes of this exercise, I'm going to give it a bomb, but I understand why people like it. And I would recommend watching it if you're into a throwback retro hangout movie. It's like Days and Confused more than it's like a baseball movie for Linklater. Yeah, this came out after Boyhood, which got so much praise and Everybody Wants Some was really shuffled into the background and did not do well critically. So I I never saw this one. I do want to watch it, but very mixed reviews. So our last one is Fever Pitch, which is Jimmy Fallon and Drew Barrymore. And this is a rom-com I really like. This is a nom for me. I like Fever Pitch too. Also a nom. I think it's It's a cheesy rom-com. It's set in Boston. It is a good baseball movie, so I would give it a numb. But I haven't seen it in a long time. I will say it's not on my list of go-to romantic comedies, but it is a good one, and I think it's fun. But I do love one thing about Fever Pitch that I think is really cool is that the remake actually coincides with the Red Sox winning a real World Series in 2004, which I think is really cool. So check it out even if it's just for that little detail. Definitely a lot of great baseball movies out there to watch, but first and foremost, we do recommend A League of Their Own. Rewatch it. It is available to rent. So on Prime, iTunes, YouTube, anywhere you rent movies. Thanks for listening. Have a good fourth weekend. Be safe. Wear your mask. And we will see you next time. Thanks, everybody.